Good afternoon. This is Dr. John Ewing, and I'm with Spirit Lake Wellness. With us today, we have Dr. Drake Spaeth, a professor of psychology in Chicago, and today's topic is on inner process. If you would, Drake, please tell us a little bit about yourself and your perspective, and start to tell us a little bit about what do we mean by inner process, and why is this an important topic? Sure. Well, I have worked at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology here in Chicago for 12 years now. I am a faculty member in the counseling department there, so I train future counselors. My perspective is rather unique in that I've done a lot of outside reading in Jungian psychology, and I've always had strong interests in transpersonal psychology. But at school, I really teach the existential humanistic psychotherapy courses, and I'm the course lead for the trauma concentration there. But I have a broad range of interests in some of the mainstream approaches as well, cognitive behavioral therapy and psychodynamic approaches. What all of this means is that my views on what you might call inner process in the sum total of things might be rather... Um, off the beaten path, as it were, compared to some of my more mainstream colleagues. I tend to wonder, in fact, if the separation that we seem to perceive between inner and outer process is actually a real one in some ways. I, and I think this sort of, in an odd way, corresponds with what, I, what very little I understand of quantum physics. But you know, what I'm really thinking of is this notion that we're sort of swimming in a sea of brain processing when it comes to understanding our senses and how we process our senses on an internal level. In other words, what we see as light and visual stimuli, what we hear is sound, what we smell is smell, what we taste is taste, what we touch is touch. Those things aren't real or objective, they are what our brain is telling us about what we are doing. And all of those things essentially can be fooled or manipulated artificially. This of course is the premise of the movie The Matrix. And you know, one wonders in fact then whether what we're experiencing isn't all subjective. But that being said, certainly we do have this this uh, awareness of thinking about it, of having reactions to it, of feeling, of experiencing, and in that swimming, in that sea of, of sensory stimuli, the processing of those things, we make sense in some ways of our experience, and we make sense of it in a way that doesn't seem immediately available to the people around us or what we experience as the people around us. So in that respect, there's at least some sense of a separation. And when we really kind of get in touch with that introspectively, there are, there are some interesting things maybe worth discovering and worth being aware of and, and ultimately worth talking about like we're here doing. Yeah. It's interesting to me that increasingly in our society, uh, media and many uh, TV commercials and movies encourage us to look outside of ourselves for happiness and to look at the outside world or some pill to increase our happiness and increasingly 
some of the traditional ways of finding happiness within ourselves uh, seem to be evaporating and becoming something of a lost art. I would definitely agree with that. You know, even Facebook, many of the, the sort of, you know, what some might consider to be banal distractions of the world are tailor-made to take us out of any real kind of uh, authentic experiencing. I mean, the moment we start to feel a little anxious or start to feel a little bit sad, well, we better start surfing the web or we better start looking for a Facebook meme that we can help us feel better or find someone else's that we can sort of be distracted by or take us away from it. And it seems uh, that we have indeed in some ways lost the art of or are being disconnected from the full immersion and the value of a full immersion in facing those experiences with courage and interest and enthusiasm. Yeah, it seems as if uh, when we look at uh, all of our experiences are internal, but some of our experiences seem to come directly from the outside world uh, via the channel of sensations. And as soon as the sensations arrive, we immediately begin to process those into perceptions. And then it seems as if there's a, a, a series of routines or movies in our head that become engaged. And um, it's really kind of confusing when we look inside ourselves to sort out, well, why did we do what we do? Or what is the self? Who is there? What are these thoughts in my head where do they come from particularly when we have then in addition fooled ourselves in some ways into believing that there is an out there out there when in fact all we have ever known is the processing of those sensations that you're talking about and the very real question can be asked what is the nature of the seemingly real connections we've made to the outside world when the reality seems to be we haven't really made them. And all of that <laughs> can become very confusing. True. True. I used to, uh, well, in fact, one of the ways that I try to approach understanding the mind, for example, I think that uh, one of the ways we could approach the subject of inner experience is to talk about the mind. And what is there in the mind? What is the mind? I used to think that uh, mind was uh, related to the word mend or to put together and that whatever ideas we could put together consisted of our mind. But there's another approach to mind and that is uh, to mend. Stand by. Are you there, Drake? Yes. Okay, good. And that is to, uh, and that is that mind uh, means to stir up and so anything that can be stirred up that we become aware of could be said to uh, take place in the mind and then the mind would be all of the things that could be stirred up such as memories ideas uh, and perceptions and I think traditionally we've sent we've separated sensations from that because uh, uh, the immediate sensation seems to come from the outside world. Yes. So I'm wondering, uh, when you look at all of those things that can be stirred up, 
uh, is there a way to categorize what is stirred up and how do, how do we make sense of this ability to experience things that we have? Well, gosh, you, you, you really ask the easy questions, don't you? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's always my preference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these are, of course, I think various versions of what you're saying and what you're asking here have been pondered and considered for a long time by philosophers, theologians, uh, scientists in their various ways. And you know, I don't know that there is a real easy answer, but I will say this, you know, for me, what strikes me, especially in, in kind of the existential humanistic and more specifically a gestalt psychological perspective that I have, is how we, that is human beings, seem to, tr to have this capacity to organize ourselves in the present moment, um, taking all of those things that you mentioned, you know, the way we process our perceptions at any given time, this thing that we might call memories of past experience. We bring all of that to every moment that we experience. And we have this very subjective way of looking at our past as we're doing that and interacting with others, interacting with the outside world. But it's like we are organizing and reorganizing, um, constructing, modifying, and perhaps deconstructing and then reconstructing our sense of self moment to moment as we react to the world and as we interact with the world and with other people and as we form relationships then we develop new memories of those things over time. But it's, it's always in this present moment experiencing kind of way and the sense that we're always organizing ourselves. And this is what we do. We see things as whole, as meaningful. We take what is not necessarily an inherent order of things and we create it as ordered. For instance, our ability to see things in clouds and patterns, these are just puffs of vapor. They're random kinds of configurations, but we like to see shapes, you know, the teddy bears and the animals and uh, different kinds of things. And, you know, people in our lives will say that the clouds look like those things. We'll see these kinds of inherent patterns in things where there are none. So the sort of innate organizational capacity is something that I think stands out about us and what what you're calling here our inner process. Sure. So let's let's break down this uh, inner process into some components. Um, we might have, for example, uh, our flash by flash, moment by moment experience of whatever it is we're directing our attention towards. Uh, does that seem like a reasonable starting point? Um, seems reasonable to me. Okay, so it's almost like uh, one flash at a time. Uh, we uh, experience one moment after the next, and we have this capacity of attention and the ability to, to direct that attention. So we can choose one particular thing to look at, uh, one particular thing to listen to, or we might pull back and take in a panoramic view of what is going on around us. Um, likewise, we might direct our attention inward 
to various thoughts, memories, and uh, movies in our head. So uh, we appear to have then some process by which we decide what to turn our attention towards. And I was wondering if you might have some insight on what, what that process might be. Well, hopefully, this is sort of what you're looking for. Um, for. Again, from my perspective, I think what seems to really impact that process most significantly is our history of prior interactions with things that we've attached certain feeling values to. Things impact us a certain way. We have emotional experiences. We have strong reactions to them. And that shapes, in fact, how we direct that attention, how we direct and mold that concentration, and sometimes, even more startlingly, what we allow ourselves to see and experience versus what we do not. Because, of course, if we experienced everything that was going on around us, we would be so completely overwhelmed, we wouldn't be able to organize or function. So we have to have some way of limiting those things in a way, you know, to filter those things in a way that's manageable. But research seems to suggest that we do so in a way that fits our previous preconceptions that we've constructed through past experience. So we develop these heuristics, which are ways of thinking about things, mental shortcuts, if you will, that sometimes are not exactly completely logical, but can help us filter out a lot of data. But we might miss a whole hell of a lot of things because we have this thing called confirmation bias that keeps us from seeing things that do not fit with our perceptions or what we have kind of formed as our expectations. You know, it's a two-edged sword. We'll miss a lot, but we'll also it'll also be the way we move through the world and have a meaningful experience of things and to develop our theories of how things work and to anticipate what might happen or not happen. And so this is kind of what it means to be human and why we are as fallible as we are. And I think a lot of uh, what we call mindfulness techniques maybe, or what might you might also call in philosophical terms a phenomenological way of looking at things, involves really turning attention to what it is that we've developed preconceptions about to notice where we're having strong reactions, to notice where some of those blocks are, and then slowly to deconstruct those blocks or to do what a lot of the existential philosophers call bracketing them, temporarily setting them aside so that we can be open to the phenomenon in front of us in a whole new way and thus expand the potentialities we have for really living our lives according to new capacities. So I apologize if that answer was all over the place, but those are some of the things that kind of occur to me in response to your question. Well, very good. Uh, one of the things that uh, came out of that is that our ability to direct our attention is by excluding all of the other things that are going on other than the uh, object or process of interest. And I think that when we're highly distracted, we're not able to think clearly. And so I was hoping that we might explore what does it mean to think about something? 
uh, say we're thinking about uh, uh, what to have for dinner or what we're going to do tomorrow. How does that take place? Well, yeah, that's another easy one. <laughs> yeah, I, I've what I, one thing that I've noticed, and some things that I've sort of thought about as I've read about thinking, and and again, it's always interesting when you're getting to a level of thinking about thinking, you know, what we might call that metacognitive kind of aspect. <laughs> um, but I don't know if you've had this, this experience, but I have quite frequently, where I will intuit something that seems to be on an entirely wordless level, but then my brain seems to insist on trying to catch up to it by putting the verbal element to it. So even though I sort of already kind of know or have this sense of what I'm thinking before I think about it, I have this verbal kind of thing going on that has to happen to organize that to catch up to it. So I've often felt that we, we tend to think about something without words well before we actually put words to it and take the, the language that we've learned through the course of our lives and apply that to kind of give some organization and a way to communicate about our thoughts to ourselves and to others. I, but I've often wondered what it would be like if I could sort of give up that verbal part altogether and just think without the words and uh, to hone in on that, how much more quickly we, you know, I could respond to things or capture things or intuit the deeper meanings of things. I agree. I think that, uh, for example, if you're walking down a trail and you see a uh, curved object, a curved round object, you, part of your brain might, might think snake and you might leap away from that object and then the rest of your brain catches up and realizes, oh, no, that's just a rope or a stick. And um, we can actually then feel foolish for overreacting to what was initially perceived to be a real threat. So I think there is a, a, a process of revisiting our initial impressions to uh, sort through them and, and see, well, does this, how does this compare to the other experiences that we've had uh, with a particular object like what we just saw? And so I think, yes, that it's, it's very reasonable to uh, have this sort of inner patrolling process where we go through things over and over again and we check and make sure that all of our ideas and memories are, are organized in a way that makes sense. Right, and I think we have neural networks that really support that process as well, you know, that we have these association pathways that allow us to sort of compare what we're currently perceiving to the history of things that we're perceiving and to sort of place them in categories, and that's why we might mistake a rope laying on the ground for a snake, and we'll have that startle response because, you know, again, we're responding as if that snake could maybe leap out at us and bite us. And then, you know, the rest of us sort of catches up and says, oh, it's a rope, recategorizing, you know, reorder, reshuffle. Yeah. And so as we go through life and we experience things, we tend to uh, build this web of understanding. And the threads that connect different things is uh, our memories of of how these things interacted. Um, 
So I'm wondering then if sometimes dramatic or even traumatic events uh, sometimes break those threads and yeah. declare to us that the world is not what we thought it was. Well, I, yeah, I think traumatic experiences do have that impact. And I'm not even sure that it takes something as extreme or severe as a trauma in order to do that as well. I think um, there might be other things that could make us aware of just how sort of fallible our memory is. Um, I'm thinking of Alfred Adler, who talks about early childhood recollections as an important part of his work where he would have his clients list three to five memories of childhood to describe them. And what he noticed is when people would pick memories, they would tell them in story form, and invariably those memories would have some sort of thematic relevance or connection to what was going on in the client's life right now. So in other words, they're selecting those memory stories based on their relevance to the present. But the other interesting thing is, is when he went back later to ask them to recount those same memories, many details had shifted in a way that was then rel more relevant to what was going on in the client's life at that time. And the clients weren't aware that their stories had changed and modified. So the startling thing about that to me, when I think about how much we base our ongoing sense of self on what it is that we remember when you think how malleable and fluid our memory is especially when we're recounting it to somebody how fragile then really and fluid is our sense of self and who we are especially when we're only experiencing it moment to moment and we are reconstructing the past in the present through this thing called memory yeah, this is a very flexible process, and it's kind of remarkable that we manage to con convince ourselves that uh, our ideas about what's going on around us is somehow real, when it is, in fact, so flexible. Indeed. And the, the good news is, is that in the case of something like a trauma, that's a very strong feeling tone kind of memory construction um, and you're right I think it does interrupt us you know sometimes the person's ongoing sense of self because it's the sudden intrusion of an experience that can't immediately be assimilated into that structure and all of that but the good news is is because of the fluidity what what um, neurologists might even call plasticity in the brain it might be possible ultimately to assimilate and accommodate the story of that trauma and not necessarily to recover because I think that's an illusion but certainly to fully own the person we now are with this new experience and to re-hyphen member it to literally put it together with new limbs if you will to remember it in a new way reconstruct it in a way that is more life-affirming, more helpful, more positive. Um, this, of course, happens within narrative therapy approaches around trauma to help clients sort of uphold the survivor kinds of themes rather than the victim themes in what it is that they remember ultimately about those traumatic experiences. 
I don't know. There are just so many important, relevant, and exciting kinds of directions we can go with all of this. But that's what seems to be popping up for me. Well, it is interesting that you're what what you seem to be saying is that uh, we've got a whole bunch of events that we're capable of remembering or that we've experienced, and that we tend to assemble these in a particular way that tells a story. Yes, and. Um, so it's almost as if there are stacks of events stored up uh, in our memory and then we pull these things out one after another making a story that we tell ourselves about who we are, uh, where we're going, what we're doing, what is our purpose. Absolutely. So what goes on then when we're uh, having, say, an inner conflict and a, and a struggle inside of ourselves, um, who is it that's talking when we're having this sort of internal dialogue? Yeah, my, my only answer to that is it's the one who is observing all of that within us. <laughs> and who is that? I, I mean, gosh, I, I, I don't know how to answer that when all's said and done. But it certainly seems to be connected to this thing we call consciousness, whatever the hell that is. Um, and whatever the hell that is, we can say, seems to be in its way also so fragile and tenuous in that it could disappear and go away completely if enough damage is done to our physical organism and our body. You know, everyone likes to say our brains are like computers and we are like machines, but the big difference between us and machines and computers is you could completely disassemble a computer or a machine and put it back together again and expect that computer or machine to function in exactly the same way. With human beings, the minute you would start to try to do something like that, we start, you know, our bodies start decomposing and all of those things. And even if we were the most brilliant microsurgeons ever and we could really attach these neuronal connections again and all of these other kinds of things, I just don't see consciousness returning the same way a machine would regain its function or a computer regaining its function. So this, there seems to be some mysterious difference between us as living beings and sentient than machines and computers and that mysterious quality of consciousness is what seems to be there and what seems to be connected to that being who is observing all of this okay um so another way of of looking at a, a lot of this is that we're not just a passive observer uh very often uh we might have contradictory desires. We might have uh, thoughts and ideas and then concerns about that thought and idea. And it's almost as if we're weighing these trains of thought and then we cut off the one that we don't want when we make a decision. But I think yeah. many of us have had the experience of, of making a decision and then changing our mind. And yes. It's almost as if uh, we get kidnapped yes. by some other desire. It's almost as if there's some inner struggle. And how do we how do we approach coming to understand that? 
Well, it almost seems like, you know, after I've spent all this time talking about how we're always trying to be whole beings and to organize our perceptions into a cohesive sense of self, I suppose in another very real way, what is also happening is we're constructing um, fragments or we're constructing sort of sub-personalities, if you will, or, or pieces of ourselves. And we, while we want to bring those pieces into relationship and connection, and in some way those, you know, the connection between those things might even be said to be ourself, the truth is not all of those pieces really hang well together. You know, I've, I've, I've written sort of an um, article slash poem. Um, in fact, people have called it uh, psychopoetry <laughs> um, in that it's sort of a psychological reflection put in a poetic form that sort of compared all of this to ice on the Chicago River that sometimes forms in triangles. And so you have this slowly flowing river of shards of ice that almost seem to fit together at times but then move apart and yet it's all kind of flowing in the same direction. I see this maybe as an analogy of, for all of this that it works, that we are messy mosaics that roughly hang together as these messy kinds of whole, but any part of that mosaic is capable of expression or maybe kind of taking prominence at any given point. And when two of the pieces of the mosaic sort of clash together, we experience this sort of conflict or this dissonance that sometimes is not very easily resolvable and, you know, I would argue it doesn't really get satisfactorily resolved all the time. Other, at other points, we are more fortunate in that we can sort of have one um, piece have a stronger voice and it seems to fit a little bit better with the external circumstances in our life. This allows us a prioritizing of values and all of those kinds of things. But at other points, many values will be in conflict with each other and the the decision piece simply becomes difficult. And, you know, all we can do is accept our brokenness yet which yet tries to flow towards some sort of wholeness as all of those ice fragments move along down the river. <laughs> so it, at times it, it almost seems as if our desires have a life of their own. Are they mm. somehow separate from the self or separate parts of the self? Or uh, They don't seem to, they seem, uh, it doesn't seem to be our exact consciousness, otherwise we would, uh, we would be able to execute our plans without interruption. Certainly can seem that way, doesn't it? Particularly when that part that you mentioned before that seems to be capable of observing all of this from some sort of distance, when that part of us either seems to disappear or get identified with those desires or those parts or those sub-personalities, and we maybe momentarily forget that we are more than those desires or we we lose sight of the fact we we identify so strongly with what's happening that you know if i think about this in terms of a craving i must have that cake and i must have it now or the world will collapse and this has to this must happen and there's not really any sense in that moment of experiencing it that way of the value of any moderation of putting that off for you know, a time when it might be a little bit better to apportion pieces of the cake or whatever, 
sometimes in the the power of that craving it it almost is like something has seized control of the wheel and uh has gone down that road a little bit and until we can sort of get back in touch with that observing piece that can say whoa wait a minute what just happened there and all of that um but we i i really believe strongly that we have the capacity if we can notice ourselves doing this to really kind of have that sense of modulation um but it doesn't always happen for for people yeah so it is kind of interesting when we start thinking about things and then we find ourselves wandering off in thought and i was uh hoping to uh, get your your ideas about well what do we mean by wander off in thought where are we going yeah um how does that happen well, you know, that's a, I think what's tricky about that question is you and I might be coming from different places when we hear that question as well. So again, I can only share how I'm experiencing what it is that you're asking. Um, when you say sometimes we have this capacity to wander off in thought and then what is left, what is remaining of us when we do that, you know, what's sort of left, where do we go when we wander off and um, what is the we that's wandering off and what is left in the wake of all of that. What's I, what I'm reminded of most strongly is, of course, um, what used to be called different states of consciousness or altered states of consciousness that I'm hearing increasingly being referred to as sort of ordinary versus non-ordinary um, consciousness. You know, I'm not completely satisfied with that as a distinction, but at least it sort of opens up this idea that we have the capacity to kind of open different windows on the self or on our experiencing, and thus to experience the world and ourselves. We can experience our inner world and the outer world in a way that's very different than what we habitually do when we're in what we might call normal waking consciousness. So the value of altering consciousness, if you will, through trance, through meditation, um, perhaps in controlled circumstances, through psychedelic substances, through ceremonies, through dance, through chanting, um, through fasting, um, you name it, the number of means we have you know, to sort of change consciousness and enter trance states, even through normal daydreaming, if you will. These are all ways to experience different aspects of who we are and how and the world and our experience of it. If we have that opportunity, we then have an enriched way of organizing ourselves and maybe even an awareness of new capacities across many challenges and situations and an awareness of how some of those parts of ourselves might take over at times that are inconvenient and then maybe it's less likely to happen when you know it's when we feel maybe more vulnerable to those kinds of things if there is such a thing as strengthening the will i think this is what it's about that we can and in, in fact it involves sort of a distancing or taking this observing capacity through altering our our consciousness altering the way we see ourselves others in the world and getting a better understanding and awareness of when we're vulnerable to those pieces of ourselves taking over the driver's seat like that. And then 
we can kind of keep it from happening by noticing when it's starting to happen and maybe interrupting that. So instead of latching on saying, this will not happen, I am stubbornly refusing to let this happen, ironically, maybe strength of will involves sort of a, a relaxation or a letting go of our strong kind of attachment. And, you know, I'm aware that in saying that I'm sounding a little bit more like a Buddhist or even a Zen Buddhist in some ways. Well, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, you're almost talking about a process of inner maintenance where we attend to these uh, distracting thoughts and sort through them so that we can more clearly focus on the present moment at some point in the future. Indeed. Is, is, and um, so it's, it's kind of interesting to think then about, okay, um, how do these distracting thoughts develop? Could it be that when something happens and it doesn't fit with the threads of the story through which we've assembled our sense of self that that causes a kind of a pain from which we run in seeking distraction. Yeah, you remind me a little bit of Eckhart Tolle and his work when he talks about the pain body and all of that, that, uh, you know, that that can be what happens and we can feel trapped in the pain body. Yeah. Um, so another interesting thing is I, uh, we, many of us have had the experience of... Uh, uh, driving somewhere and uh, we might wander off in thought and then suddenly there we are and we don't remember parts of the journey mm -hmm. um, wh wh who or what is is driving the the body who or what is operating the machinery when we're gone yeah it's well and good for neurologists to talk about you know that as well that's the automatic processing of our brain you know, when we overlearn something, then we don't have to allocate as many cognitive resources to it. And it's sort of like the equivalent in their mind of switching to an autopilot, where, you know, there's a part of us on autopilot that doesn't involve conscious thinking or thought that can still react to stimuli, still avoid hitting the squirrels and people on the way, on the route. <laughs> um, and you know and and even momentarily bringing our full attention to those things if we we need to but for the most part in an overlearned sequence of things we allocate fewer cognitive resources of attention to those things and more of us then is freely available to devote ourselves to that daydream kind of state or that other place that we're wandering in i i don't have any answers for for you on that except I think that it is a kind of dissociation that we're capable of doing in many ways. And we um, oftentimes do sort of distance ourselves, not from just from painful stimuli, but things that we may feel um, we don't necessarily need to be fully present for in that way so that we can wander down some of those roads and engage in a more creative processing. Um, a lot of folks in my field tend to pathologize dissociation, but I think dissociation is a continuum of experience that we all engage in from daydreaming to the extreme states that could be considered pathological, either to escape painful stimuli, but 
and also could be to engage in a very creative process of reflection and awareness um, so that something that's trying to emerge in our consciousness has an opportunity to be born. Well, sure. Yeah, let's take two uh, different examples and uh, look at, at this process of, diso- of what, what we're calling dissociation, um, mm-hmm. which might just be a redirection of our attention from uh, the outer world and our behavior to an inner world. Um, if you're driving on your way to work or to the store and uh, some uh, child or dog uh, runs out in front of your car, uh, there's some part of your mind that is almost like left behind monitoring the driving. And if uh, something doesn't fit that expectation, it alerts you and summons your attention to uh, be aware of and to respond to the situation. And very often we have the experience of starting to respond to the situation before we uh, become fully consciously aware of Mm -hmm. what that situation is. Just like when we touch a hot stove, our finger is jerking away before we realize we're experiencing the painful heat of the stove. Right. And then another type of, of situation might be where somebody is having a conversation with other people and something comes up that reminds them of some difficulty they had in the past and they dissociate from the conversation and they uh, go off on a mental journey to compare and contrast these uh, the meaning of what was said in that conversation so that they can see if it's relevant to uh, that traumatic event that happened in the past, and sometimes they might, uh, their mind might wander off along some kind of memory of trauma, and they mm-hmm. might be quite distant from the conversation that was taking place. Mm-hmm. And and in fact, they don't always, I think, get to that point that you're talking about where they're actually actively comparing or processing it in any way. Some of them might just simply be re-experiencing it in, as what we call a trigger. You know, and the flashback experience is definitely remarkable in that um, people who are triggered often experience this time distortion. Like suddenly they're pulled back multisensorily to the time that this place, that this took place. And so that it's literally, you know, in terms of a flashback, it's not like we're just see- suddenly seeing in our inner screen a memory of what happened. It's like, we are re-experiencing for a split second the actual thing happening to us. For a moment, our body is re-experiencing what our body felt like when it happens. You know, we're hearing the same things, we're seeing the same things, smelling the same things, maybe even tasting the same things. For a split second, is it? It's like we've been jerked in time back to that moment before you know we actually can reorient ourselves to the present and all of that. Um, some people, when they're triggered, don't feel like they have much of a capacity at first to process what's going on with all of that. It would be, it's like they're suddenly just immersed, suddenly just dunked in it. And I think one of the things that can sustain the PTSD and trauma process is to uh, immediately push away and distance yourself from those experiences, uh, mm-hmm. to push yourself away from having those feelings Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it becomes, uh, I, I think the triggering experience that you're talking about where somebody has a very intense flashback 
is almost like a miniature form of delirium. Mm-hmm. And in a full-blown delirium, uh, people are almost channel surfing. They're mm-hmm. in the same world that we are, only part of the time. And they mm-hmm. may converse with us, and we may see that they are afraid or, or concerned, and then they will seem to be somewhere else talking to other people. And it's almost as if uh, they're channel surfing. They're visiting different channels on their, on their inner, in their inner world that mm-hmm. apparently are there all the time but are normally not quite as vivid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would, I would definitely concur with that. You know, what you're saying reminds me of the work of Peter Levine in his approach called somatic experiencing. Levine makes the point that, you know, animals in the wild, when they are preyed upon, will have all of the stress reactions that one might expect under those circumstances. But if they successfully escape the predator, what is quite common is some sort of physiological reaction that happens involving shaking. I believe the term that Levine has used for this is pronking, um, where there's these tremors to sort of, you know, literally looks like they're trying to shake off what happens. And, you know, a lot of rapid breathing, you know, and, and panting and all of this. And within a few moments, they seem to have shaken it off, as it were and they go about their business, and they don't seem to be unduly traumatized. (laughs) Um, And, he, you know, Levine wondered if there isn't any uh, carryover to what happens with the human being to the fact that oftentimes, through admittedly, you know, the, the good intentions but perhaps mistaken intentions of others to help us, we are sometimes prevented from pronking our traumatic reactions. You know, all the things the body naturally wants to do, you know, with the hyperventilation and the shaking, what happens with our friends and our concerned family members, you know, oh, you know, calm down, don't do that, don't hyperventilate, don't, you know, we have to get you calm. Yeah. What, what would happen, in fact, if we allow the physical body its full cycle of reaction to those things? And is the body's trauma and he, Levine feels that it is the body even more than the brain that holds the trauma because we have, you know, neurons <laughs> in effect throughout our body. Um, what if, in, in fact, the body would be able to sort of move through that cycle and would PTSD be as much of a factor if it wasn't interrupted at the moment of the traumatic experience? And so he'll work with clients to help re-experience trauma in such a way that their bodies are given the opportunity to move through that full cycle. And so, you know, his success has really been based on this somatic-based kind of re-experiencing of things. You know, people do this in the safety of the therapeutic context and uh, then ultimately are able to show a lot of better capacity to kind of um, live with all of that better. That makes sense. Certainly, the uh, the vagus nerve activity. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, we have uh, uh, two different aspects to the vagus nerve. We have this uh, more primitive shutdown response that will 
cause us to stiffen and fall back and uh, freeze. And many people that have experienced uh, trauma will experience these moments of being frozen. And Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it can last for uh, quite some time. Mm -hmm. Um, And during our ordinary waking life, uh, and and so that more primitive part is what we call the posterior uh, uh, center of the vagus nerve. And then the anterior center that the mammals have developed help us to uh, regulate our heart rate. and, And what's interesting is that when it's active, it is slowing down the heart rate and slowing down our response to adrenaline. So it's almost as if relaxation is an active process. And so when we, when we first encounter a stressful situation, the vagus nerve activity decreases in that anterior part of the brain. And if this takes place to a great enough extent, then it unmasks that more primitive posterior part where people go in to shut down. Yes. Um, and I think you're right that uh, these tensions, these this getting ready to do something uh, creates these loops of activity that, yes, they can be discharged by running around, by shaking it off, by flexing and and relaxing. One of the things that we might be a little different from animals uh, is that the story that we construct our world with is more complex. And so it's easier for uh, dramatic or traumatic events to break those threads and cause us to feel as if our world has fallen apart. Yes. So I was wondering, if people avoid that inner process through distraction and through uh, material pursuits, could that then make us much more vulnerable to uh, feel damage from some of these traumatic events that we experience? Well, if any, if it does anything, it sort of keeps us walled off from ourselves, doesn't it? You know, it, uh, it fragments us. We are then retreating to a tiny part of ourselves in order to uh, avoid the pain of experiencing that connection with the rest of ourselves, which would would open us up vulnerably to what it is that we have experienced. So we retreat to where it feels safe, but it's small and limited. And so we then identify with just a piece where, you know, the value of facing with courage these experiences that happen to us involves a reintegration of the whole um and again like i said it's not orderly it tends to be a little bit messy but at least there's more of it (laughs) and you know we might be at least aware of more capacities within ourselves for choice and freedom um even if all of those choices don't necessarily make sense hanging together because human beings are after all pretty contradictory um and uh there's a lot of randomness in us too. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of interesting to see what people do to keep from losing control. Um, one of the things that people do is they pursue distraction and they escape from 
going through that inner process and and uh, knitting themselves back together and coming up with a more meaningful and well-connected story of the self. Uh, what what happens when people lose it? What is it that takes over when they when they lose control of themselves? When they lose their mind? Well, I think if you are sort of shutting yourself away from your full capacity to reason, as it were, or to put things together in a coherent kind of way, um, we're then left with whatever is there, which might be primarily emotional at that point. And so we might move toward what feels good and what feels safe, not necessarily what would liberate us um, and make us whole. Well, this is a good point, and I would, I would like to uh, have you explore this a little more. Um, if we dive into the inner process and into that inner experience, we can uh, somehow find liberation and wholeness. Uh, how do we go about doing that? Uh, with the help of a good therapist? <laughs> I don't, again, my, my profession tends to really have an inflated opinion of what it does as the be-all and end-all of all of this, so um, I say that jokingly. In fact, I think that this is the value of a damn good friendship or or a good connection with a loving family member or a tribe or a community because if there is a caring, compassionate, loving other, we can be inspired by them. We can admire what it is that they've done. If someone has faced a similar situation, as what we are experiencing and we see that they have not only emerged intact but with a degree of freedom and power and charisma and wonder and awe and those kinds of things we long to be able to be at that place too and if we know that they have faced the kinds of things we have faced and they have very capably done this we know that we have that capacity then as well. And this is why those, those wonderful things you mentioned before, like the vagus nerve and what I would add to that, our mirror neurons are so incredibly important because it is those things that allow us to really appreciate and experience something the way another might experience it. You know, it's interesting when you do neuroimaging studies um, of people watching videos of other people getting hurt in various ways or not even necessarily so, so, such unpleasant things. If you watch, if they're watching videos of people doing an activity that they themselves can remember doing, their brains light up in the same exact pattern as the person doing that activity or their brains light up in the same pain patterns as the person undergoing that pain. And they're experiencing at some level what that other person is experiencing. And the fact that you may not necessarily distinguish between the brains of the person actually having the experience and the person observing the one having that experience indicates that 
there's some part of us, once again, that doesn't really differentiate between self and other, between subjective and objective, if you will, bringing it back to the very beginning of the conversation. You know, this is what we might call empathy. And through that capacity for relationship and connection, this is where I see we can become capable of liberating ourselves from this fragmented realities we live in because we're inspired by the examples of others who have done this, who have faced life in adversity with courage, who've experienced themselves in their wholeness a little bit more. And we know that we have the capacity within us to do that too. So a good loving friend can do this for us. I think you're right. And it's interesting, not only do parts of the brain all uh, resonate with the experiences of the of the other person that we're observing, but the vagus nerve also resonates. And yes. one thing that's kind of interesting is that there's been a, a, a huge shift in our culture and in the way relationships are conducted. Many of our young people are more comfortable texting or emailing than yeah. they are face-to-face. -face. It's almost as if they, they keep the distance uh, and the abstraction of the text uh, as a sort of a shield to protect them from that inner resonance that they might otherwise feel if they were face to face with with the other person and part of it I think is that they are afraid that some of their feelings and some of the pain of separation that they're experiencing might come through to that other person and that they would somehow be diminished Yes, if that other person saw that Indeed. I, I see it with my students in my classes. You know, there's an experiential piece to what I teach in terms of helping students learn therapy from an existential humanistic perspective. But in order to truly, quote, learn that approach, it's not something that can be taught. To a certain extent, it must be experienced. So I will have them role play and engage in psychodramatic exercises that are specifically designed to bring up authentic material and authentic feelings for them and it challenges them to do so in front of their peers and to make themselves vulnerable to their peers and of course they all sign agreements that they understand this is going to happen and that they all agreed to do this and engage in this experience but I'm struck by how unusual and foreign it is to them. Like you said, they have been so used to modulating through text their interactions and relationships with others and with each other. To deliberately make themselves vulnerable in these learning exercises is something completely new to them. And it's like it wakes them up. It um, opens them up to the transformative potential of doing all of this and then their capacity to work with clients in a new way is opened up. And it's also interesting to hear you talk about uh, the authentic self and yes. um, okay well then let's look at what is it that we often portray that is not authentic and yes. that is not the real self and could that be something that we display to other people or to ourselves or to both and, sure and what 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 do we mean by authentic self how do you get that well carl rogers um called it incongruence and he said that we can experience intrapersonal 
incongruence and interpersonal incongruence. So intrapersonal incongruence means that we're aware that we are not behaving in ways, um, we're aware of ourselves not behaving in ways or feeling in ways that we would like to feel or that we're not in places in our lives where we would like to be or that we seem to be um, engaging in things that we haven't quite um, decided to do <laughs> in our lives. And then interpersonal incongruence is awareness that we are out of sync with another or in conflict with another in terms of relationships that um, what we want is in conflict with what another wants and that those things are not lining up and that the authentic direction we want to go doesn't seem to be at all related or connected to what they want. And uh, I think when we're aware of those kinds of dissonances or those disparities, this is what helps us um, kind of bring into being this idea of authenticity. Because when we are in a state of congruence on those dimensions, we might be said to be acting with some level of authenticity. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to look at that whole subject of authenticity and inner process. Uh, many of us have the experience of absorbing a script, a life script about uh, how uh, how we expect ourselves to turn out, what we expect ourselves to be. And it's interesting to try to set aside some time and have a process to look at that and process it in a meaningful way rather than to be victimized by some aspects of these maps that just sort of hijack us at times and make us feel as if we're uh, not doing our job or not accomplishing our purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think when we're over-identifying with what it is another wants from us, you know, that can happen. Um, I, I'm also put in mind of Martin Buber. Um, who is a sort of theological existentialist in some ways. But he talked about the difference between the I-it interactions we have with people versus the I-thou interactions. And this also speaks to, I think, uh, a level of authenticity which may be there or not. I mean, the vast majority of our interactions with people in the course of the day could be characterized as I-it. You know, you go to the grocery store and you're interacting with the person who's bagging your groceries or operating the cash register and, you know, collecting your money or processing your credit card or whatever. Um, you're not relating to them as a human being. You're relating to them as their function. And they're relating to you as the customer. You know, this isn't necessarily an equal sharing of things, but it's a useful sort of manipulation to get what you want and need from the other person. And I'm not knocking it. it it's what gets things done. What's, it's what moves things along in the course of our day and in society. But the I-thou moments we have are when our souls kind of open up and we have this equal sharing, this vulnerable kind of making ourselves available to the other person. And in those I-thou states, authority distinctions power distinctions, role, role differences, career differences tend to matter much less. And in fact, tend to matter not at all. It's a, it's a sort of contact between equals at that moment. And then there's this relational space that opens up between them that becomes fluid and fertile 
And once again, the capacity for choice and freedom is activated in that dialogic relational space that opens up in the I-Thou. And, you know, moments for greater authenticity in contacting that part of the other person that you admire and want to be so much, that part of you that longs to be that, that recognizes that thing in the other. And again, maybe mirror neurons and vagus nerve kind of helps in that process with that identification. So I'm hearing some interesting themes here as we speak. Um, it's as if, um, if we if we don't take time to uh, tend to our inner process, then we are more likely to be distracted and overwhelmed by uh, parts of the self that we're out of touch with, and we're not going to have the type of liberation and the uh, number of choices that we might otherwise have. And yes. then I'm also hearing that even though this is an inner process, that very often when we uh, share our inner world with others that we trust, uh, it becomes much easier to uh, comb through and sort through those inner processes and, and uh, uh, I guess, be at peace with them? Yeah, I would, I would say that that is the case. Um, I find myself resonating to what you're saying, for sure. And in our interactions with other people, sometimes as we build that sort of sense of uh, relationship and who we are and what we expect in the relationship, I've noticed that a lot of people will do what I call problem talk, where they talk about those other people and, and how what they're doing is wrong and, and uh, unworthy. And sometimes uh, uh, that, I don't know if that uh, uh, detracts from this sort of inner process that we're, that we're discussing or if it's part of that. Well, I think the contact with the inner process gives us the capacity to recognize when we're in that state. You know, when what I might call the inner critic has become a bully. Yeah. And, and has been pushing you around and taking over. And uh, w without that, we are just basically being shoved by the bully and maybe we're over-identifying with the bully, you know? So the inner process context, for lack of a better description, might allow us to recognize when the inner critic is getting too big for its britches and becomes uh, pushy. Well, th this is an interesting uh, uh, segue in uh, back into something that we're, we were discussing. Uh, we've got that inner critic uh, which can become a bully. And then earlier you had mentioned uh, sub-personalities. Um, yeah. And I was wondering if you might just kind of go through uh, sort of the uh, who's who uh, in these uh, inner processes. Well, yes. Uh, you know, you could, you could say, you know, the inner critic, that the inner critic is a valuable capacity that can help us understand better our limitations and our, uh, you know, the realistic challenges in our lives, um, what our talents are, what are the things we are that struggle with. But when it gets to be out of hand, it be, turns into that bully, you know, and, and we give in to those insecurities or whatever. That's what happens maybe when the critic sort of um, acts out of its normal or out of its healthier kind of role. But we have wiser parts of us. And 
I'm loath to put any kind of universal labels on these things because I think people might have their own names for these capacities within themselves. But, but I think in general we have wiser part of ourselves that we might associate with maybe a teacher part of ourselves or a mentor part of ourselves. I like to, to joke with my students when um, I'm talking about some esoteric kind of subject that my Dumbledore part has taken over or my wizard persona has taken over or whatever. But that might not be, you know, what's like what another person would call it. But I would say then if the wizard, for me, takes over too much, then I start to basically... Um, make it too much about me in terms of my getting power you know I might you know instead of being the Gandalf I might become the Saruman or whatever if I'm you know really uh, getting a lot of ego gratification from um, you know the sense of power it is that you know it's like wow look how they're listening to me and look how wise they think I am and all of that so I think what happens is this over identification where the ego starts to get a little bit inflated with the sacred experience of these things and, and gets a little drunk <laughs> yeah. on its own power. Um, and then uh, we've got to have some way of recognizing when that happens. Um, but then we all have foolish parts of ourselves that we become aware of as well. And the fool can be this sort of childlike innocent that helps us experience the world in new ways or it could be the impulsive part of ourselves that uh, succumbs to addictions or impulsive choices to spend too much money or whatever you know when the when when that sort of is uh, getting out of hand um, so I don't know many different possibilities of parts and I think what happens is you know in terms of what subpersonality is operant at any given time it's worthwhile to get in touch with those things and identify them within yourself and uh, spend some time sort of mapping out maybe how those things relate to each other and how they they interact in, in unhelpful as well as helpful ways. Well certainly there was a time where people were supposed to pay attention to and bow down to their conscience and yeah. I wonder uh, you've got the inner critic uh, being a bully at times, do you think the conscience can be a bully or maybe be too weak? Yeah. Well, for me, I mean, the, the, and again, this is where categories can maybe start to become problematic, but I think an overactive bullying conscience can look an awful lot like a critic. That's true, too. That's true. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's kind of interesting to look at the different systems by which our inner experiences are categorized uh, one of the traditional models is the uh, uh, the conscience on one shoulder and the devil yeah. on the other and the guy in the middle yes and then it's not clear it's yes. called super ego and id you know in relationship with the ego <laughs> uh -huh. yeah and then he broke the uh, the id down into two pieces the uh, uh, the angry part and the fun part right and um, uh, then a lot of traditional societies have a, a four directions approach to these things. Yeah. And neuroscientists are completely puzzled and don't know quite what to think. I think uh, Paul Ekman uh, breaks it down by facial expressions um, mm -hmm. as to who 
who this uh, uh, more or less interconnection of subpersonalities and and parts of the self might be. Mm-hmm. And are you referring to micro expressions there? Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Paul Ekman and his work on micro expressions. Yes, uh, and, and uh, certain, on you know certain like moments on film where that particular rageful expression or that particular joyful or that particular anguished expression which would pass in a split second and not normally be perceived yeah 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 uh, it's and it's interesting that uh yeah when we look at our inner process uh we might be having a conversation with somebody and we'll have all these movies and thoughts and whatnot come up in our head and be sort of the inner chatter that takes place while we're listening to that person. Uh, yes. It's, it's very interesting to, to look at these things. Yes. Well, and I, I think, you know, for me, there's, necessar there's not necessarily any one right way to engage the inner process in a helpful way. Um, but I do think what is most helpful, and it seems almost counterintuitive to say, you know, that when we think about inner process to do this, but I think to look to those relationships we have that are most potentially transformative, those are the ways by which we can experience ourselves in an expanded way and kind of get an aha handle on what it is that seems to be happening out of our awareness. And then when we notice ourselves in a given moment doing that, we can say, ah, I'm doing it at this moment, and here's an opportunity where I can interrupt it, or that observing part of me can say, isn't that interesting? Look at what's happening, and what can we learn from it? Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. And we might call that mindfulness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's been interesting to discuss for a moment the inner process and to try to figure out what that is, and do people these days have more of it or less of it than they did in the past and yeah. um, uh, certainly there seems to be some sort of value to doing it in a deliberate way to taking some time to to have an inner process yes um, and then yes there are huge uh, tracts of uh, understanding that are unknown about that inner world and and how it takes place and, and what is important and valuable and how do we bring all this together to have more fun yes what what is it you know you know that what is that mysterious thing in us that could so in a moment be snuffed out you know without the slightest provocation um, that that spark that seems to mysteriously ignite when we're born very good all right. Well, I think we've got some material to sort through. Okay. Um, and so thank you very much for your time today, Drake. And uh, enjoy the rest of your day. And certainly some good things to think about. Same to you.